it was pure filth a lot of the time. It's, you know, just all about sex and smut and, you, you know, obscenity. So that was reflected in the content of the flyers. <laughs> I'm Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Boogaloo Stew is the legendary promoter who reshapes nightlife with his distinctive take on mass culture, which is a light-hearted and irreverent approach that is nevertheless grounded in an obsessively detailed understanding of his source material. He was the host, DJ, producer, performer, everything else that you could imagine at Shinky Shonky, a club night which ran in a number of venues across London from the late 90s. We caught up to talk about Shinky Shonky as well as The Polar Bear, a bar in Soho, London, which hosted the night for a number of years from the turn of the century. So at Shinky Shonky, you performed as Boogaloo Stew. Yeah. Where did he come from? Well, I suppose Boogaloo Stew was conceived, probably when I was still at college, um, I, would, I would throw parties at college and I would DJ. Um, and I didn't call myself Boogaloo Stew then, but I was dressing up and showing off. And then when I left college, actually, I should say, when I, my, my degree was uh, in textile design. And for a year of my degree, I was lucky enough to go to New York. And I worked in New York for a year. Um, and when I say worked, I did as little as possible in my job and spent all of my time going to clubs and, and partying um, and coming into work the next day and throwing up in the toilets and stuff like that. I was really, really badly behaved. I can't believe I held a job down for as long as I did. But that year in New York, I was quite a shy person, really. I wasn't like a massive show-off uh, unless I dressed up. But I would go to clubs and I, w- I observed a lot of amazing, amazing people like RuPaul, uh, D-Light, Lady Miss Keir, Lady Bunny, Suzanne Barch, like all these, Diane Brill, all these kind of icons of New York nightlife in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was sort of seeing them all firsthand. Um, I had a brief friendship with RuPaul where I, uh, I styled him for a photo shoot. Um, and I was just, I was kind of, pretty much in awe of all of them. Mm. Um, so they were really inspiring for me. Um, and part of the inspiration was the fact that they were all really nice. They were really nice people. You know, you get this, uh, I don't know, up until that point, maybe I had this idea that um, to be sassy was more important to be a bitch or, you, you know, like the, the idea of a bitchy drag queen or a bitchy celebrity or a, a bitchy haughty show-off, you know, um, and they were all really nice, friendly kind of people. Mm. Um, so that was quite, you know, enlightening and inspiring. So I came back and I finished uh, my degree. And then when I left, it just felt logical that I wouldn't get a job and that I would start, uh, you know, try putting on club nights. Um, and that's what I did. And for ages, I didn't have the name Boogaloo Stew. I was just Stew. And then the club night was called Dynamite Boogaloo, which those two words are lifted from a song by Liquid Gold called Dance Yourself Dizzy. Uh, there's lyrics in there that are Dynamite and Boogaloo. And I don't even know why, but we chose to call it Dynamite Boogaloo because of that song. Mm. <laughs> it's like, 
it's a good disco record and we did play it in the early days but that's where the name came from and then i don't know whether i'm just really stupid but it took about a year and and some it took someone else to point out that the club is called dynamite boogaloo why don't you call yourself boogaloo stew <laughs> i was like that's a good idea <laughs> so that became my name and again the the look was slowly evolving as well initially i looked like i'd i don't know just uh, fallen, covered myself in blue and fallen in a dressing up box like i looked like a dog's dinner basically and gradually it became a bit more polished and a bit more interesting and you you know individual yeah uh and and the quiff appeared i don't know probably about a year in the quiff appeared and has never left <laughs> so it's it's like yeah that's how he sort of metamorphosed and so what would you say is the main difference between you and him um well i'm quite shy and quite quiet um i don't like to be noticed <laughs> And when I'm dressed up as Boogaloo Stew, I will talk to anyone and uh, I'll say anything to anyone. You know, do you know what I mean? I've got no barrier. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not sort of, yeah, it's just, I, I don't think we're wildly different. It's just he, he, he the wig, the, uh, for it is a wig. Uh, gives <laughs> no, <laughs> you've ruined the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it gives, it, it somehow gives me permission to show off. I don't know. It gives me more confidence being dressed up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I don't really work in clubs anymore. Um, I mean, I'm still performing, but I don't really do much work. I don't DJ anymore, which kind of suits me in my advanced years so that I'm not having to go out until 5 a.m. and stuff like that. So I've got a bit more of a social life now. Because even though I was doing club DJing and all that kind of stuff, it, it's surprisingly antisocial in terms of establishing a social life. <laughs> you know, because obviously you're in a venue and you're DJing, making sure that people have a great time, but it's actually quite a sort of solitary existence. So yeah, I don't really do that anymore. I do lots of quizzes and bingo shows and theatre work and stuff like that. But I've managed to slowly extricate myself from nightclub work, which was drying up anyway, uh, which I think is the is is what we're going to talk about, I suppose, isn't it? How how the sort of landscape of of clubs and venues has changed over the past decade or two decades. Yeah. It is currently a queer bar. It's the Q bar um, yeah. in London. So why why do you want to talk about it as the polar bear and how is that distinct from the venue that it currently is? I think, um, I mean, it, it, it was actually, it was called, what was it called when I first started working there? It was West, it was West, West something, West Central. It was West Central when I started working there. Um, and that would be 1997, I think. And then it became the Polar Bear, and then it became Flip, and then it became West Central again. So it had it, sort of during my tenure there, it, it had four different names, and then it was closed and became a straight pub, and then it became Cuba. So that was the sort of lineage, and the the, the name was never. Do you know, I mean, we were there the whole time and there was all these new managers coming in and saying, oh, we're going to rebrand it as this and that. So we were the kind of constant and it was the management team that kept changing. It was always owned by the same brewery, though, right up until I left. Um, it was really just their sort of marketing strategy that meant they kept changing the name. Ah, OK, that's odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the best way of putting it. Um and so then were you employed like on a freelance basis to run a night? Um, yeah, I started off doing Shinky Shonky at the Tube, which it uh, was later at the ghetto. And we were on a Monday night there. And it was really difficult to get people to go out on a Monday night in, in any great number. So we were struggling. We were getting, I don't know, 50 people a week at the Tube, which was okay. 
but I, I wanted to attract a bigger audience and yeah I just wanted to I wanted to get a better night basically so that all my all my friends and people that wanted to come to the club who were working during the week or, or for whatever reason could come out on a Monday night so I found West Central as it was then uh, they had uh, they had Joe Egg doing a Friday night once a fortnight and his mach- his night was called Pop Machine and we took on the alternate Friday. So we were there once a fortnight. And the first night, the venue got absolutely trashed. The, the first night we were there, we had something like, the venue only held 150 people. It's really small down there, you probably remember. And the first night we were there, about three or 400 people turned up, um, oh, wow. which took me by surprise. I mean, obviously they didn't all get in, but there was a big queue of people waiting to get in. And the venue just weren't prepared for it at all. They didn't have enough staff. So the there was no one going around collecting glasses or anything like that. Like really basic things didn't get done. And by the end of the night, the, the floor and the floor was like a sea of broken glass. There was glass kind of packed up into the corners of the, the, the room, you know, like um like a kind of wave, like a I don't know, like a pile of snow or something. It was it was ridiculous. People were kind of walking through all this broken glass and it was absolute carnage. Do you know what I mean? It, the place was a mess. Like stuff had fallen off the walls. Pipes had come off the, the walls and the toilets. Water was pouring out. And it was like an absolute mess. And they were just totally ill-prepared for it because they were used to, I don't know, 50, 50 or 60 people turning up for their Friday night or, or Saturday night gigs that they had on there. Um, and I think Joe Egg was doing a really good job with Pop Machine, but he wasn't getting the the same. He didn't have the same kind of opening night that we had, basically. So from then on, they were kind of a bit more prepared for it, and they were excited that we were doing it because they knew we had a an audience. So, but, but you yeah, were we, invited back, so that's crucial. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but we we did wreck the venue just like we were there. So, yeah, and then we continued sort of doing it in tandem with Joe Egg for about, I don't know, it was probably about six months or something, or maybe a year. And then Joe Egg, I can't remember why he stopped doing it. I don't know if he got a different venue, maybe. I think they moved, he moved his night to somewhere else. I can't remember. But anyway, the other Friday became available. So we ended up every Friday there. And we were there for about, I don't know, I think we were there for about six years, maybe, something like that. And so... For those who don't know, can you tell us about uh, what a typical shinky-shonky night is? Well, um, I mean, before I started shinky-shonky, I was doing a night called Dynamite Boogaloo in Brighton, where the premise, when I started it, in uh, this is back in 1992 that Dynamite Boogaloo started, and it was always meant to be the sort of antidote to rave culture and to house music and sort of bland you know, nondescript nature of of dance music. And mm-hmm. um, so we played, the playlist was pop music and, you know, radio edits and vintage disco and, and vintage indie tunes and kind of music that people can sing along to, you know, kind of party anthems. That was the idea uh, in terms of the playlist. And then combined with that, I wanted to put on a show, a bit of a cabaret and have, you know, just be really stupid, basically. Um, I was sort of aware that I wanted people to get more out of the experience than just turning up, dancing and having a drink, getting off with someone. I wanted it to be more of an experience. So I'd been living in London for a few years by the time I started Chinky Chonky, and I I wanted to do a similar thing to Dynamite Boogaloo, but do it in London. So that's why I started it. And the first couple of years that I did Chinky Chonky, it morphed into more than just music and cabaret you know I was giving away badges and we also had like all kinds of stuff that I would I'd go to Sainsbury's or the um yeah the cheapest supermarkets I could find or the cash and carry and I'd bulk buy my hoops my freezer was absolutely full of mini milk lollies and I'd have to get them in the height of summer from uh, you know, from my house to the venue as quickly as possible before they melted. But we give away all this stuff. Like I'd go around with a big tray of hula hoops and uh, Jelly Belly Jelly Beans uh, sponsored us for a while. So we had loads of little packets of jelly beans we'd give out. And 
and the badges, of course, as well, like uh, badges for people. So people would have a slogan, an obscene slogan on their uh, lapel for the evening, which would hopefully act as an icebreaker to <laughs> Alex, you know. So it was more than just, it, you know, there was all these things going on simultaneously. And it, it was it was always a bit chaotic as well. But uh, yeah, that was the that was the basic. And we also had obviously uh, my cabaret guests who in the early days, it was pretty much Miss High Lick Kick every every Friday or every Saturday with me. But then other people came into the fray as well. There was uh, Princess Knickers, uh, Legato Chocolat. Um, we had the incredible tall lady. Uh, there was various different characters who, you know, performed on stage with me. So, yeah, it was a, like a little kind of cult of its own, I suppose, for a little while. Okay, there's lots that I'm picking up on there that we need to talk a bit more about. First of all, the obscene badges. Yes, yes. <laughs> tell, tell me, tell me your favourite ones. Um, well, in the early days, this it kind of predates um, with Photoshop and, and those kind of uh, things. I was I was making uh, badge designs out of Letraset and cutting out photographs of people from TV Quick magazine and things like that. So people who were in soaps like Dot Cotton or, um, you, you know, people from EastEnders, people from Coronation Street or Richard and Judy, anyone like that, that were in these magazines, I'd cut them out and then I'd have a little speech bubble and then I'd letraset uh, an obscene phrase into the bubble. So what is letraset? It's like, um, it's where you have a sheet of uh, lettering and you rub them off onto the paper. Okay. So it's it's like typesetting, but manual typesetting, wow. you know, it's like old, really old fashioned. <laughs> so um, I, I'd make these badges and I still got them somewhere actually, but I have sheets and sheets of them, like 11 badges on an A4 sheet, 11 designs that I've done. And they were really, they were the most fun because they, they were very time consuming, but they were kind of, there was a lot of love put into them, but they, they said things like, I don't know, <sighs> is this false modesty here oh i can't, re- I can't remember <laughs> no, um, there's one that i had that sticks in my mind which was a cat a picture of a cat with a speech bubble coming out of its mouth uh saying i require immediate clitoral stimulation <laughs> and uh that that was a classic badge um yeah there was you know i'd buy a magazine like a, a nature magazine so there'd be lots of animals on the badges as well with speech bubbles saying stupid things like that but other than that they might just say uh, big hairy bollocks or um massive cock or you know whatever just for someone to wear uh, and, and display that slogan and over the years i became familiar with how photoshop worked and so i would then uh, the designs became a, a little bit more polished. Those early designs were very sort of um, homespun. Mm. Um, and I'd take them to be photocopied, colour copied, and then I'd cut them out and make them. But more recently, they, they became more professional uh, <laughs> in, their, uh, in their look. <laughs> That's a huge effort. So you were making like 50 badges a week or...? No, more than that. I mean, wow. sometimes I had to get people to help me. It, it depended, but... Uh, I don't, I'd always try to make enough badges for the the capacity of the venue. So I think it was 140 or 150, the polar bear capacity. So I'd, I'd make 140 badges every week. Um, and so uh, I'd like to talk about some of the performers that you worked with. So a typical show, so it's kind of everyone's dancing, the music stops, you come on stage. Then what happens? Well, I would always, you know, typically at Shinky Shonky, I would always sing a song. Uh, I'd sort of welcome the crowd and uh, I would sing a song. I had a variety of songs. Casting my mind back to those days, I had a, you know, um, there was a boogaloo rap, uh, (laughs) which had a sort of, it was just obscene, basically, a load of smut. Uh, and then typical songs would be um, Born to be Wild, mm. These Boots Are Made for Walking, The Girl from Ipanema, kind of 
weird sort of slightly jazzy standards that I'd found on old easy listening albums, like instrumental versions of them. So I would sing those. Um, I also had a, a, a spinning wig medley and I had a, I had a wig which had a sort of motorized thing on top. And I had a separate sort of wig section on top of the existing wig, which I had a little wire down my sleeve and I could make the top of the wig spin. Um, and I had this medley of songs that had spin in the title, like You Spin Me Round and Spinning Wheel um, and things like that. So I sometimes do my spinning wig medley. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was the opening of the show. Then I would introduce a special guest. Miss Highlight Kick would always come out. She had a sort of set piece of music that she would do her introduction to and she'd uh, allow her, her toe to peep through the curtain, a sexy leg would appear, and then she'd burst through and do a volley of leg kicks. And then we'd play a game of some sort, or we might have a sing-along or both. Um, we used to do sing-alongs to, like, uh, Reach by S Club 7, That Don't Impress Me Much by Shania Twain. Hits of the day, hits of that era, like the early 90s, early noughties. Yeah. And we, I would uh, rewrite the lyrics in an absolutely obscene fashion. And we'd have them printed up on big boards and we'd hold up the board like verse by verse and everyone would sing along. And uh, th that was really good fun. You know, it's hilarious that everyone's singing these obscene words to S Club 7 hits. Um, so yeah, Miss Hilekic and I would uh, duet, and Miss Hilekic is a terrible voice as well, but it's brilliantly terrible. So again, it was um, fantastic for people to hear her shrieking. <laughs> and then we always had a game show uh, at the end, which would involve some audience participation. Now, initially, again, when I was in my showbiz infancy, I would pick people at random to participate. Like sometimes we play musical pass the parcel or something like that. And the parcel would just go to anyone in the audience. And I kind of very quickly learned um, that it wasn't a fair way to do things because some people are really shy, you know, obviously. And I, I don't want to embarrass people mm. if they haven't volunteered to do something. So it didn't take me long to figure out that that wasn't really a good way to do it. So I don't know, within the first year of doing Shinky Shonky, it became about inviting people up onto the stage to participate. So you got you basically got people who wanted to join in. Or who were forced by their friends. Yeah, or forced <laughs> by their friends, yeah. But um, yeah, generally it was, it was done that way so that no one felt they were being picked on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'd play... I mean, the games were usually messy. Um, there was Penny Up the Crack. There was Shit Lips. <laughs> there was um, Kiss the Chicken. Um, sniff My Panties. Uh, okay, break down the rules for these games <laughs> for us. <'cause> I... <laughs> right, okay, so um, Penny Up the Crack, I still play when I'm doing my bingo games or whatever, bingo show. Um, it's a really simple game where you have a penny clenched between your bum cheeks and you start off at one side of the stage and there's a pint glass at the other end of the stage and you have to walk across the stage clenching the penny <laughs> and then you drop it in the glass. And we always had two or three rounds and round two would be you had to repeat, repeat that process but you had to use a pickled onion. And then round three would be repeating the process but with an egg, with a raw egg. <laughs> so it kind of became... There was more jeopardy as the show went on, basically, and we'd often end up with eggs smashed on the stage, which was, you know, health and safety would have had a field day. <laughs> that, uh, then we had Shit Lips, which was a sort of question and answer, a very arbitrary question and answer, <laughs> yet, where the questions were complete nonsense. So the answer was completely, like, random. Um, and people would have to say, oh, that's true or that's false. And if they got it right, they avoided shit lips. And if they got it wrong, they got shit lips, which was, you know, Nutella or chocolate mousse uh, in, a, in a big bowl, which would be uh, brushed onto their face. So people would end up. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't lightly brushed. <laughs> yes. And then 
uh, Kiss the Chicken was a roast chicken on uh, impaled on a leek. And quite often I would give it a face as well. It would have, the, the roast chicken would have like um, eyes made of, well, a carrot nose and, uh, you know, whatever I could find, Brussels sprouts for eyes, you know, sort of dress the chicken up so that it looked a bit more human. And again, it was like shit lips. It was question and answer. And if they got the answer right, they got to eat some chicken. So they'd kind of, I'd hold the, the leek and they'd go in for a mouthful. Um, and basically there was two chickens, a, a one for each contestant. And whoever had eaten the most chicken by the end of the contest was the winner. Um, and, you know, I'm a vegetarian now, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that game anymore. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was fun. And then <laughs> the chicken would speak as well. We had lots of little clips on CD that the DJ would cue. I'd sometimes point the mic to the chicken and there'd be something queued up. Uh, the chicken would say. Um, and then, what's the other game I just mentioned? Oh, Sniff My Panties. Um, Asda used to sell really cheap multi-packs of knickers. Um, so I'd go and buy like 10 pairs of women's knickers, 10 pairs of guys' pants, and we would soil the gussets of these knickers with all kinds of substances like piccalilli, marmite, raspberry jam, custard like whatever we could find that looked disgusting um and then people had to smell the pants and figure out what it was or taste it um yeah <laughs> <laughs> just, and, just yeah, innocent yeah. fun sometimes as the game would progress we'd put the gusset over like put the pants over their heads so the gusset was across their nose do you know what i mean like vertically over their nose and eyes um, you know, depending how wild the, the, the show got really, how, <laughs> how up for it they were. And that's just reminded me of another game that we did actually, which was Blind Drunk, which was a kind of take on Blind Date, like Phyllis Blind Date. Um, and we would blindfold contestants. They'd be put on a bar stool on stage and we'd blindfold two contestants and we'd give them... Uh, things that they had to identify like the first thing would be something they had to touch it would maybe be i don't know a, a chocolate bar or something and they'd have to guess what it was from touching it and then there'd be a fragrance which was usually a really pungent um air freshener and we'd spray a bit of air freshener and they'd have to guess what the what the um flavor was the set the fragrance and then as it progressed they'd have to taste something um, yeah, we all, we were always careful to check if people had allergies uh, or anything like that before we uh, invited them on stage because they never knew what they might be asked to eat in this particular game. Um, so we then asked them to, they might eat a bit of chocolate or something and they'd guess that it was chocolate. But then obviously they're blindfolded. So we would then bring out something that looked like a poo, but obviously it wasn't a poo, but it might be like a, a a chocolate bar made squashed into the shape of a poo. And so the audience would be going, oh, no, no, no. And they'd be like, oh, oh, it tastes like chocolate, you know. And then the last thing we would do would be a condom uh, washed, you know, get all this sort of, uh, you know, the, the stuff they put on condoms, wash that off. Um, oh, no, they, that, there was something, there was a round before the condom, actually. <laughs> cat, cat food. We would... What I would do is I'd get, um, I'm letting you into trade secrets here, but I would get like Sheba cat food in a little foil tray and I would very carefully peel the foil off, dispose of the cat food, wash the tray thoroughly and I would replace it with mushroom pate or something like that and I'd, I'd stick the foil back down with double-sided tape so we'd bring them out and we'd peel the foil off and it looked like it was just being opened. And inside there'd be this sort of pate-like substance that looked like cat food. So we would feed them pretend cat food. And again, the audience would just be absolutely horrified, like this can't be happening. But of course it wasn't happening. And, and the two contestants would be eating it. And then the final one, as I was saying, was um, uh, condoms, which I would wash and then I would put a little bit of yogurt in the tip of the condom. <laughs> so it looked like a used condom. And we'd ask them to tip their head back and we'd squeeze the condom contents down onto their tongue. <laughs> 
and it was I mean it was just disgusting and the audience would be like heaving by this point um and the contestants would be like mm, mm, oh it's oh it's that yogurt <laughs> um so that was a good fun game <laughs> but and so i mean from the sounds of things it took you the whole week to prepare for that one night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did take, it took up a lot of my time. At that time, I didn't have a lot of other things in my in my diary. I was doing, I was still doing Dynamite Boogaloo in Brighton. I was DJing here and there. But my life was quite sort of, um, you know, during the day, I was like, well, what am I going to do today? It was my, I didn't have a job or anything like that, a normal job. So I, I would just, that's what I would be spending my time doing was devising ridiculous scenarios or making stupid props or costumes or whatever. I mean, thinking about it now, there was also quite often I'd do, Miss Hylekic and I would do a, a sort of special routine of some sort that we've come up with. And there was one, uh, there's two things that I can remember where we did a, a routine to soldier, soldier, Oh, soldier, soldier, will you marry me? This kind of traditional uh, folk song type thing, uh, which the lyrics are really stupid. And um, well, they're not stupid, but obviously I turned them into something completely stupid. Miss um, Hyleckit, we recorded her singing it really badly, and then we mined. She would mine the song, soldier, soldier, will you marry me? With your musket, fife, and drum. And I would say, oh, no, sweet maid, I cannot marry you, for I have an object on my bum. And I had this costume, which was like, it was a pair of trousers with a fake bum sewn into it. And they were like really big, baggy, flared trousers. And in the legs of the flares, I had all kinds of things that she would stick her hand in into the bum, uh, like a big bum hole at the back of this bum. And she would stick her hand in, and she would pull out all kinds of like household implements. And it went on and on, like every verse. Oh no, sweet maid, I cannot marry you for I have uh, something up my bum. And uh, you know, the last thing that came out was a, a sort of full-size French baguette, which was right down one leg to, to my ankle, you know. And, she, and people were like, oh my God, it's a whole baguette. <laughs> um, and there was another, you know the song Pump Up the Jam? Yeah. We did a version of that called Pump Up My Balls, which it was, I had this costume that I'd made. Um, it was covered, it was flesh colored, and it was covered in little pockets, this costume. And uh, so it was meant to look like a, a skin tone bodysuit uh, with lots of little pockets. And in the pockets, there were balloons with little plastic tubes attached um, and little tiny little corks at the end of each tube. And so I rewrote the lyrics to Pump Up the Jammers. Uh, each verse was about a different body part being blown up. So the first bit was Pump Up My Wig. And I had this huge wig, which had a balloon inside. And Miss Hylekic would blow up the balloon as I was singing the verse. So my hair would kind of grow. And then the next verse was Pump Up My Tits. And she'd go from side to side and she'd blow up one tit and then she'd blow up the next tit inside this costume, and then it was pump up my ass, and she'd go around the back, and there was two balloons in each butt, a, a balloon in each buttock, and so she'd blow those up, and then it was pump up my balls, so again, there was two balloons, a balloon in each ball, and um, so by this point, my costume is completely distorted, like ridiculously distorted, and then uh, pump up my cock, and she's blowing up my cock, but actually inside the cock, I've got a turkey baster, um, <gasps> which is filled with hand cream. <laughs> and instead of her being able to blow up my cock, which obviously isn't something that normally is blown up, it, it explodes in her face. The, the hand creams, I, it, <laughs> I ejaculate in her face. Um, so we would do that. Um, we would do the soldier, soldier. There was another. There was another brilliant act that we did for Fran, where she, uh, sorry, Miss Hylekic, where she was. Uh, I made this costume again. It had a fake bum and fake tits in it, and uh, it was kind of like a strip routine. But she was dressed as an old lady, and the, the tits were stitched into this like old seventies house coat, and the bum was stitched on the back. And in the bum again, there was loads of objects like a really, really long string of 
um, like silk handkerchiefs tied together. It just went on forever and ever. And in the tits, what I'd done is I'd cut out the nipples and in the tits there was eight raw sausages <laughs> in each tit. And the tip oh. of the sausage, when she came on stage, it just looked like the nipple. But then she, you know, during this little strip routine, she would pull the sausage out and the whole string of sausage would come out of her tits. I mean, it was really, really, really stupid. I don't even know how I came up with it. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm throwing raw sausages around on stage. It's like so not um, suitable for health and safety nowadays. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, so again, I would spend my week thinking about those things. Like, oh, what, what can, can I do? pull out of my butt this week? <laughs> yeah, because I was also aware that we had lots of regulars and we did repeat stuff. We did do stuff more than once, but I was also aware that I didn't want people to turn up and see the same thing every week. So yeah. I was always thinking, well, what could we do this week that is different? Um, so that was it. We would listen to adverts a lot as well. Adverts were on the TV. We had various favourites that, again, had been doctored. We, we dubbed stuff over it to make it more obscene than it was or whatever and we had props and so it was it was kind of fertile for it, it was a real sort of fertile period for smut thinking up you know the most ridiculous smutty things that we could do it was it was good <laughs> and uh, and so in amongst all of that miss high leg kick was your ride or die then and she she just went along with everything or <laughs> was she providing yeah, her I mean, own smut she she was she's got naturally good comic timing and we would we would get together to come up with some of it um you know we, we we'd sort of work on things together um so it wasn't just me on my own it sometimes was but so, sometimes she would come around and we, we'd go what are we going to do we've got to think of something for the, this saturday or this friday or whatever and we were also simultaneously we, we were doing performances at ducky so we we I don't know why, but we'd always put in an extra special effort to do uh, a show for Ducky, and then sometimes from the stuff we did at Ducky, other ideas would kind of follow on, and we'd end up doing those at Shinky Shonky. So um, she was a regular for um, the first I don't know six years of Shinky Shonky from '97 to maybe early noughties, and then gradually other people started coming in and doing occasional Fridays and and uh, Princess Knickers and the Incredible Tall Lady, Legata Chocolat. There was various other guests that started doing bits and bobs. So, yeah, it was, um, it was good. <laughs> and so the how did you, like, meet these new people? Were they just regulars of the club that then started performing or...? Um, Princess Knickers was a, a regular at the club, basically, and she was always flashing her knickers at me, and they always had a little sparkly word um, done in gemstones, like twat or minge or slit. Um, and I was like, <laughs> and then she was like, oh, I, you know, she said, I, I, I could do a strip tease for you. And I was like, okay. Um, so she became like a, a, a kind of house regular uh, who would who would join me in the same format where we would do lots of messy game shows and she would do a little uh, burlesque style routine. Again, um, Princess Nickers had, had a more interesting take on, you know, her, what she did wasn't really burlesque. It, that does a disservice to call it that. Um, because I think people now have a particular idea of what that means. But then she was taking her clothes off, but she was doing things that were like re either really stupid or really kind of innovative. Like she had one routine that was uh, where she hoovered her clothes off. She had a hoover and um, like all her bra and knickers and various other items of clothing would be hoovered off. Mm. They would kind of come off and disappear into the hoover. So um, there was kind of more more to her than just being a, a sort of burlesque girl. Um, and the incredible tall lady, again, just another friend who was, you know, a show-off, a really big show-off. So it was the natural place for her to be on stage with us again doing the same kind of thing just joining in with the game shows and doing little sketches with us and stuff like that so 
Um, and Legato, I'm not sure actually if Legato started doing stuff with me after after we left and it came because we ended up going back there doing Shinky Shonky for I don't know was it be three years maybe for a Q bar but it was on a Wednesday by that point they offered us the Wednesday um and Q bar is a very different kind of venue it didn't in retrospect I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did there because we were it was very much Shinky Shonky was a fish out of water in that space. I kind of appreciate what they do, you know, it's it's got a it's got they've got their market, but it's a very young, kind of um twinky market at Q Bar, and it didn't fit with the the kind of ethos that we built up around Shinky Shonky, you know, the the regular following that we had aren't the kind of people that would go to Q Bar really. So we struggled a bit there. And we eventually, we eventually left. <laughs> but, but isn't that like, isn't that kind of incredible that you were in the exact same building and you had built up a number of followers over the years or regulars over the years. And suddenly because of new management, the vibe was different and it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it basically was like a completely different space you know, it, it wasn't the same, it wasn't the same brewery. It, it, there was nothing connected apart from it being the same building. Mm. And obviously it was still an LGBT led uh, company. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, there really wasn't much connection. So yeah, it was, yeah. It was quite odd. Yeah, it's just really fascinating. Um, and and so you talked about the Q, Q bars kind of target audience or its niche being a, a younger clientele, uh, Twinkie. Um, yeah. How does that differ from who was going to Shinky Shonky? Um, Shinky Shonky was a real mixture of people. Um, it was a mixture of uh, well, it was a mixture of gay and straight. You know, it was a mixture of gay, lesbian, straight, queer. Um, a mixture of ages. There was a bit of a bear following. There was a bit. There, there was a lot of lesbians that came. Um, it was a real mixture of people. Mm. It's a, a, a broad brushstroke of students and kind of arty types, and you know, it was just. And also, Soho was a much more vibrant place than it is. Well, I mean, so, there's stuff going on in Soho, but there was much more to bring you into Soho than there is now, I would say. Um, Can you expand on that? Well, I think you had, well, you had the Astoria, you had Ghetto, you had um, Polar Bear, Retro Bar is still there, but there was lots of other little bars, uh, Barracuda, um, I'm trying to think of some, oh, there was some, what's it called? Trash Palace. there was Freedom Bar. I'm just trying to think of some of the other places that were around there. And beyond beyond those places that I've just mentioned, which are specifically LGBT-led venues, Candy Bar as well, um, there was also lots of straight clubs, you know, Samaritz or um, what's that little one that was under the arches? Um it's in the basement in the arches. I can't remember the name of it now. Mm. I think it was Gossips. Um, there were loads of, loads of clubs, basically. Um, Eve's Club on, on Regent Street, and then later on it was on Burlington Street. Like, loads of venues. And uh, one by one, they'd sort of been picked off and, and turned into flats or, or, what, or shops or uh, chain restaurants or whatever. Um, and there isn't much to draw people into the West End anymore. But then, every, and the, also the way licensing was in that in those two decades, uh-huh. um, people would go, it was kind of like there was a routine to your night. You would go to the retro, the, my, a lot of our regulars went to the retro bar to start with. They would have a drink at the retro bar until about 10 and then at half ten, they knew they had to get in the queue at Shinky Shonky or they might not get in. So 
Retrobar would be closing at 11 anyway, so they'd leave Retrobar at half 10, walk up to um, Lyle Street to West Central Polar Bear, and the, we opened at 10, and by half 10 there could be a, a really big queue. At its peak, we had, we'd almost have a queue by that time. So um, there was this kind of routine that people knew they had to get there on time, and then they'd get into the club, they'd get a drink, the cabaret would be half 12, and then dancing till 3 a.m. And that was a sort of routine. But then when the licensing laws changed in 2008, that all went a bit pear-shaped for clubs and venues. And also it was it was simultaneously scuppered by the smoking ban, which it, it was like a, it, the same year those two things happened. Mm-hmm. And suddenly loads of clubs had to make it, had to stop charging you know so promoters didn't make any money anymore because all the venues were going oh well it's free entry tonight because everyone was staying in the pub beer garden until 2am instead of thinking oh we need to go to a club at 11 or there'll be be nowhere open so it it just it all changed around that time and I, I don't lament it particularly I think it's a good thing that people aren't smoking in clubs for one thing and I also think it's a good thing that you can get a bloody drink in a pub past 11 o'clock but it did it definitely did affect clubs and businesses and and you know that's it's 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 pretty much why i uh ended up moving out of that industry i think i was ready to leave anyway uh you know djing and and that sort of world Mm. um i was ready for a, a, a different challenge um and also as i say i didn't want to be DJ until 5am on a Saturday night I kind of thought I want my social life back so um, so yeah it did all change mm. around that time but I would, um, to go back to the original point which was about Cuba and how their audience are very different I think it's it's, it's just one of those things where they're in yeah they've, they've taken on that new space and I think their demographic is a much younger audience and they're the people who go into the West End, they, they, they go to Q-Bar, they go to Circa, and they go to Heaven and places like that. Um, the more interesting arty types are, are going out in the East End, you know, like Dalston, Dalston Superstore or wherever, those kind of venues, or maybe not going out at all, or maybe living somewhere else like Margate, you know. Yeah. It's like everything is shifted um, and fractured. Uh, so there's not like Soho isn't the epicenter of, of kind of all types of queer culture anymore that it once was. Um, and it's all, it's all kind of dissipated now. So, um, I mean, I think there's still, you know, you've got the Admiral Duncan, Compton's places like that on, on Compton street that still cater for different age groups and different types of people and what have you. So of course it's still there, but it's, kind of marginalized a little bit i think it's much smaller scale than it was yeah yeah absolutely um and yeah it's it, it's probably part of getting older but i can't imagine myself going into central london every weekend anymore no, <laughs> and it used no. to just be like oh, well of course that's where you go and now it's like oh god i've got to go on the bus and then i've got to do this and then <laughs> yeah yeah no i agree i mean there's just nothing there's nothing that would draw me into the West End, really. Uh, you know, my, I've been to the theatre in the West End. You know, the theatres are still standing, but mm. you know, it's like, um, yeah, the, most most of the big clubs that were in the West End have gone. You know, I think that the, the death knell was when the Astoria was pulled down, and that whole block. That, you yeah. know, there was there was a Metro Club, there was Ghetto, and there was the Astoria, and then across the road. Not so far away, there was the end, and there was another club that was directly across the road uh, next to Centrepoint. I can't remember the name of it, but they've all gone, you know. And there was also Billion Dollar Dollar Babes, which was in the basement of the YMCA on Tottenham Court Road. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, I mean, there was loads of clubs around there. There was loads of stuff, and it is largely it's gone you know there's little places little quirky places that you might still discover but there's no big kind of club culture in in soho or nearby anymore yeah do you remember the last night the last event that you ran at that venue i vaguely do (laughs) i remember getting a letter from the venue from the 
from the head office people at, at Mitchells and Butler um, thanking me, <laughs> like saying thank you so much for for I don't know it was it eight or nine years of of you know successful promotion and what have you, which was really nice. I was actually quite touched by that because normally you just think oh the they don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, and then I I kind of I kind of remember. I mean, I remember it being really really packed, you know, and we did have a lot of people queuing to get in that couldn't get in and stuff like that. I don't remember. I've got no idea what we did or anything like that. But I do remember we already had a new venue lined up, which was in Stoke Newington. <laughs> you know, miles away, but the Oak, the Oak Bar, and we were going to go monthly there. And we did that for, I don't know, three years, maybe. We were monthly at the Oak Bar, and it was good fun up there, actually. Um, but it was it was a struggle to, to promote it because it wasn't nearly as easy as it had been in the West End. Yeah. Um, but because we had this new, you know, because it wasn't stopping dead, uh, it didn't feel... It didn't feel like the end of an era or anything like that. So I don't, I don't have specific memories of it finishing at that venue. I can't really remember. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, and so then looking back, what's the thing you miss most? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I miss it at all, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I mean, why, why are we having this conversation? <laughs> I miss the um, the kind of atmosphere of it. I suppose the kind of yeah, it was it was hedonistic, but without any drugs or too much alcohol or anything like that. Because again, that was something that we just didn't do. Um, it was boozy at Chinky Shonky, um, but that was it really. I wasn't if people were on drugs, I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just I kind of miss that sort of slightly hedonistic looking back, you know, it's part of my misspent youth really mm. promoting, promoting and performing there. Um, you know, so I've got, I've got fond memories of it, you know, like all these things that I've been talking to you about these in ridiculous costumes that I would spend days making, uh, you know, to do a lip sync or a, a, a version of a song with inflatable boobs or whatever it was, you know, um, that was a lot of fun, like putting all that together and, uh, you know, working with uh, Miss Halekic and the other special guests. It was, we were all at the beginning of our career. Mm. Uh, you know, we've all gone off in different directions and done totally different things, but it was good fun doing all that. So, yeah, I suppose. And also the DJs. I mean, I wasn't the only DJ at Shinky Shonky. There was, um, we started off with Newton and Ridley as guest DJs who were a sort of duo. And then one of them, which is named after the, uh, the brewery in Coronation Street, it's called <laughs> Newton and Ridley. Um, and we ended up, we lost Newton. He, he left the ranks. So we were left with Ridley, whose name, his DJ name is Albert Twatlock. And, uh, oh. Albert Twatlock is still a very good friend of mine, and uh, he still DJs now and again for for other people. But he had a he had a big part to play in shaping the kind of music that we played. You know, bringing in in sort of uh, more left field indie tunes, or, or he always had promo copies of brilliant new pop stuff as well ahead of anyone else. Um, so, give so, me some examples of the songs. Um, well, he he first played um, the clapping song, the version by Anita Harris, which is an absolute staple of Shinky Shonky. It's like an absolute classic. If it's not played, then it, it hasn't been Shinky Shonky. It's like you might be familiar with the Shirley Ellis version, but you haven't lived until you danced to the Anita Harris version. It's just it's so much more jazzy and beefy and danceable you know it's just it's brilliant it's an amazing so he introduced that he would play things like stereo lab and and bands like that who were a bit more left field but people actually did want to hear so there was a kind of it was interesting what he brought in in terms of musical choices and um 
I remember there was one night, it, this wasn't him actually, this was me, I had been sent uh, a promo of the Sugar Babes Freak Like Me, which was like a mashup of Adina Howard, Freak Like Me, and Gary Newman, uh, Our Friends Electric. Yeah. Which, and it went on to be a, like, a massive number one. Yeah. And I got this like CDR sent from the from a promotions company uh, of this this Sugar Babes new single, and I was playing it. And Richard X, who actually <gasps> produced it, was there. Oh wow! And he leant over the DJ decks and he said to me, "Where did you get this?" And I was like, "Oh, I sent it." And he was like, "I haven't even heard this." And he hadn't heard the finished mix, and I was playing it. <laughs> <laughs> And I think he was a bit annoyed because they tweaked the drums and stuff or something. He was like complaining about it, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, so we were, we were always interested in playing new brilliant pop stuff. So there was, there was a big part of it that was about like, you know, I remember Ooh La La by Goldfrapp. We had that weeks ahead of it coming out and we were playing that all the time because it was just so brilliant. It just sounded so completely different to anything else in the chart. Um, and people would always, you'd play it and people would be coming up going, who's this? Who's this? You know, so we had that kind of, we were excited about new music, but we also loved all from the 60s through to the 90s, whatever, like kind of cheesy, interesting, disco, easy listening, whatever it was, you know. So there was a real mixture of that. But I think uh, Albert Twatlock really helped to fine tune and helped us find an identity that was different to rival clubs like pop stars or ducky or uh any of those other you know club, uh, vaseline was it vaseline garage that, yeah oh. okay um anyway you, you know it was kind of it set it apart yeah I yeah think. it gave it its own identity and i think that was largely down to him yeah and i think i mean the the one thing i would take away from that time and going to that night is the you know down from the the music and the performance and the whole vibe is just that complete lack of pretension it's just like do we enjoy this yes then let's do it rather than oh what does uh enemy say about this or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 i agree yeah so one of the questions that i had was uh obviously like throwing a club night having a gig doing any of those types of things is like throwing a birthday party and being terrified that no one's going to come mm -hmm. and then kind of being on tenterhooks all night trying to like make sure that everyone's having a good time and make sure that if anyone's annoyed or pissed off that that you're attending to them did was that kind of the thing that happened to you when you were there or or did you like were you able to have like fun and just relax at any time? Yeah, I always, I always managed to have fun. Um, some, sometimes it, it, it could be stressful sometimes, but usually only if something had gone badly wrong, mm -hmm. like on occasion, the power would go down in Soho. We had power cuts. <laughs> um, there was occasions when, you know, people couldn't get in that really needed to get in or there was never any trouble. Um, but there might be really drunk people who needed to be ejected or, um, or some nights it was really quiet. Um, like bank holidays were notorious. Brighton pride weekend was notorious and it would just be empty. And I, I would kind of think it's really not worth actually bothering, you know, mm. but we would, but we'd like have like 50 people rattling around, um, wondering where everyone was, but, but it never bothered me because I was largely always prepared for it, I suppose. There was occasions when people were caught having sex. Um, uh, that wasn't particularly upsetting for me. <laughs> they would have to be ejected, obviously, you know. Um, oh, ejected, good choice of word. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was largely, it was, it was fairly stress-free. I mean, what I realise now, having... So the past, for the past 10 years, I've been doing, you know, devising theatre shows and, and touring with them, uh, as well as sort of running my quiz nights and what have you. Um, and what I've learned is that actually what I, was, what I was doing then, I was a DJ, I was a promoter, and I was also a producer. Now you'd kind of separate all those out, you'd have three people doing those jobs, and I was doing them all. I would turn up at like 
nine, eight thirty, nine o'clock at the venue, and I would put the glitter curtain up, and I, I I'd sort the stage out, and I'd put all the prizes backstage, and I'd make sure the lights were working, the stage lights, and uh, do you know what I mean? It was like I was doing all the all the kind of prep as well as making costumes and preparing show tapes because we were using tapes then as well, like cassette tapes. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'd be editing show tapes. I'd basically be doing the the all the jobs that a show producer would normally do. Filling um, the condoms with yoga as well. Yeah, yeah, I'd be doing all of that, <laughs> preparing the knickers for, for sniff my panties. Um, and then I would... I'd do a DJ set and then I'd do the cabaret and then I might do a bit more DJing afterwards. And and if I wasn't doing that, then I was walking around the club giving out badges and jelly beans and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I must tell you about the jelly beans, actually. This is a good story. Go on. Because <laughs> um, we had this, we had sponsorship from Jelly Jelly Belly Jelly Beans, which were really delicious, obviously. And the woman who was the PR for jelly beans, for jelly belly, was this really lovely lady called Victoria. And um, she's very posh. And I spoke to her quite a few times on the phone. She was like, yeah, yes, yes, I'll send you some, I'll send you 10 boxes this this uh, quarter. And I was like, okay, yeah, we can make that work. And, and she said, she always said, in return, she needs to see some publicity with their logo on it and what have you. So I was always very mindful to send her flyers and what have you with their logo displayed and maybe a little tagline saying sponsored by Jelly Belly. Um, and of course, some of the flyers were a bit fruity. Uh, <laughs> and I would, I'd say to her, you know, some of the flyers have got um, rude words on them and what. And she said, no, don't worry. Uh, I, I just, I won't let my bosses see them, you know, what have you. Um, so I remember I sent her one. I sent her a bunch of flyers. We, we had loads of flyers done uh, particularly when it was fortnightly, it was like a different flyer for every single party, every fortnight. But anyway, I amassed a load of flyers to send her this particular time. And one of the flyers had an image of um, a couple doing massage. And the guy was lying on his front with nothing on. And the woman was kneading his buttock with her fist. <laughs> and I mean, it, she wasn't fisting him, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but the, the, she was kneading his buttock. So her her clenched fist was kind of quite close to his bum hole, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. And that was the reason I used the photograph, because it looked vaguely obscene. Um, and obviously it had lots of text over it and what have you, and silly words and speech bubbles and things like that. It was the same style of design as the badges. Um, and obviously in the bottom corner, there was a little Jenny Benny logo and what have you. So I sent her all these flyers and this was in amongst them. And she had left them on her desk at work and um, her bosses had discovered these flyers. And they, I didn't hear from her for, for about two months and I wondered what was going on. And basically she nearly lost her job over that flyer. She eventually she called me and she said, oh, my goodness, it's, it's been absolutely terrible. I'm, I'm afraid we won't be able to sponsor you again. <laughs> so that was the, it was the end of the sponsorship deal. <laughs> oh, but <laughs> did you, I shame. mean, did you then go to Crisco or some other kind of? No, I, was, I, think I vaguely tried. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, we just, I just, I, I don't know what I used instead, but I just bought pick and mix or whatever <laughs> kind of uh, lollies and things like that from the cash and carry. But um, yeah, she was, she was really upset and apparently it had been really bad at work for her because of that, you know, it's my fault. <laughs> so if she's going to leave it out on her desk, I think that's on her. Well, yeah, I mean, it, she kind of knew she shouldn't have. You know, she, I remember her being. She was apologising to me, saying, you, "You know, I I shouldn't have. I should have made sure that they weren't anywhere to be seen, or they should have gone in the bin or whatever." And I was like, "Look, it's it's as much my fault, really. I shouldn't have been taking liberties with your brand. You know, to some degree, it's like I should have had a bit more respect for the fact that you were sponsoring it, and I could have kept the flyers a bit cleaner. You know, um, so yeah, there it is." The flyers were obscene. A lot of them were absolute filth, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you've got to, like, promote your night in an accurate way. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the night was 
filth, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was pure filth a lot of the time. It was, it was, you know, just all about sex and smut and, you, you know, obscenity. So that was reflected in the content of the flyers. Yeah, people know <laughs> what they're getting themselves in for. Yeah. Did you ever go to Shinky Shunky at the Polar Bear? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Please share your stories and any photos that you may have from that time uh, through social media. You can find me on all platforms uh, with the username K Anderson Music. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. Uh, I've been writing songs about queer venues and things that happened within them and the people who lived their lives there, and we'll be releasing songs over the next year. You can hear the first single, Well Groomed Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right this very second, uh, on all streaming platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to the podcast, uh, leave a review on the iTunes store, or failing all of that, just tell someone. Tell someone who you think might be interested in hearing the story. I'm Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces.